This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by the Socialism 2020 Conference, which is taking place this July 2nd through 5th in Chicago. The Socialism Conference is the largest socialism conference in North America. It is where activists and organizers come to be inspired, to learn from each other, and to develop the political tools that make our movements stronger. This July 2nd through 5th, Socialism 2020 will feature meetings and discussions on the recent revolutionary movements around the globe, the history of black radicalism, Marxist theory and socialist history, trans liberation, and the fight to save our planet from climate catastrophe. Speakers at Socialism 2020 include Robin D.G. Kelly, Crystal Ball, Rosanna Rodriguez, Anand Gopal, Kate Aronoff, Richard Seymour, Sarah Jaffe, Megan Day, me, Daniel Denver, and many more. Socialism 2020 is organized by Haymarket Books, Jacobin, and the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. Register before May 8th for the early bird discount rate. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Philly. Yes, I'm in Philadelphia on the road for my book tour as I record this introduction. And that's also where I recorded this in-person interview with Kianga Yamada-Taylor about her book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. It's a remarkable history that explores a major transition in American race and capitalism. From the pre-civil rights era redlining of the black ghetto, to the rise of racial liberalism's predatory inclusion, to the neoliberal and carceral reaction that followed. Racism has always been a key force for ordering and reproducing American capitalism. It is ideological, but, like any ideology, also fundamentally material. And this is perhaps nowhere more clear than in our segregated housing system. As Kienga writes, quote, It was not just racial hatred that maintained the segregation of African Americans in their urban enclaves. A political economy had emerged and was structured around the captive African American market. Racism, Kienga shows, isn't just individuals' bigoted ideas. And it's not just a mechanism through which power and resources are organized in society, though it is certainly very much that too. It's also how capitalism's organization of power and resources, the entire class system, is explained, justified, and, once again, reproduced. Before we get rolling, this podcast, as you might know, is a listener-supported podcast. And I would like you to pause what you're doing and support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We have left-wing books to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month, including my own new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. 
If you haven't yet, please take a quick minute to support the dig that you love with the money that you have at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Some announcements. The Dig is once again going to Massachusetts for Bernie 2020 this Sunday, 11 a.m., with Brianna Joy Gray and Michael Brooks. It's a triple pod crossover canvas kickoff at International Village, which is at 1155 Tremont Street in Boston. Come listen and then join us in knocking those doors. Also, I have a bunch of upcoming events for my book, All American Nativism. Coming up really soon is Wednesday, March 4th at Trident Books in Boston at 7 p.m. in conversation with Stephanie DeGoyer. And then I'm off to New Orleans, Houston, McAllen, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin between March 11th and March 20th. Okay, here's Kianga Yamada-Taylor a professor of African-American studies at Princeton. She is the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and the editor of How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And most recently, the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership from University of North Carolina Press. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I want you to sketch out how horrific housing conditions were for poor Black people in the 1960s. You have a quote from NAACP President Roy Wilkins from 1967. He said, quote, I might say as sort of a confession that while I have always believed that housing and employment and schools are the inseparable trio that must be dealt with as far as the ghetto living is concerned, I have been a little astonished to discover in recent years the tremendous feeling about housing and even more so than unemployment. What sort of conditions were Black people living in? Why were they living in these conditions? And what role did the housing situation play in driving masses of people into the streets during that era's urban uprisings? So the housing for African-Americans, certainly by the 1960s, was dire. The U.S. had never really had a urban housing plan, even as millions of white and black Americans were uh, migrating from rural areas, from areas in the South, less densely populated cities, to the urban north, midwest, west coast, there had never been a kind of comprehensive plan to create the the number of uh, housing units necessary to accommodate the enormous crush of humanity that was moving into American cities. And so it meant that over the course of the 20th century, that there had been a constant housing shortage. And because of racial segregation and the limits that were placed on African-American housing and where black people 
could look for housing, the conditions in Black neighborhoods were even more dire. There was overcrowding. There was the expense of of housing. And then there was uh, the reality that was created by segregation meant that landlords did not have to maintain their properties in the same way that they may have with white residents who had vast uh, housing choices. And one result of this was rats. Right. And so it meant that the combination of of those factors led to the deterioration uh, of conditions in Black neighborhoods. That in combination with cities deciding essentially to curb services, to cut back on trash pickup, cleaning city streets, maintenance. And the result of that, which was, you know, overcrowding, a lack of trash pickup, meant that there was a proliferation of rats in Black communities. And so I... You know, there's the the quintessential scene of Native Son with Richard Wright. The opening story in within the novel is of Richard Wright chasing a rat around, not Richard Wright, but uh, Bigger Thomas, the character in Richard Wright's book, Native Son, chasing a rat uh, around uh, a tenement in a Chicago ghetto. And this was symbolic, really, of... Uh, the worst of the housing conditions in in black communities and the complete inattentiveness to this from federal, state, and local uh, governments. And so when I was doing the research uh, for this book, at one point, I just did a general search of rats and riots. I entered that into a kind of historical newspaper database and 15,000 articles appeared. And so the extent of rat bites, rat infestation in African-American communities uh, was profound, and it was covered widely in the Black press. It was a point of mobilization for Black activists. There was a well-known campaign led by uh, tenant rights activist Jesse Gray in New York, uh, who helped to lead a rent strike of Harlem residents. And they would take bags of dead rats uh, to Albany, to the state government, and dump them out to really demonstrate the crisis in urban housing for African Americans. And so I think the what you began with, the the comment from Roy Wilkins, I think is an important one, because we often think of, or, or we often think of housing as just a part of this constellation of inequality in Black life without really getting into the details of what that meant. But for Black residents, it was profound. When the Kerner Commission which formed to investigate the causes of riots throughout the 1960s, produced its report on the the causes behind riots. Uh, they listed three things that were repeated in all of the cities that they visited. It, their investigators visited uh, to interview people about why they thought a, an uprising had broken out in their community. And across all of these different communities in the South, in the Northeast, in the Midwest, and on the West Coast, residents, Black residents listed police brutality, unemployment, and poverty, and housing conditions, substandard housing, 
is the top three reasons that um, people gave for uh, why they thought that there were uprisings in, in, in black communities. And so I think that detail has certainly been lost in, in, you know, in Philadelphia in 1964, uh, in the aftermath of riots in this city, we're in Philadelphia, um, in this city, the report found that 100% of reported riot bites came from black majority segregated neighborhoods. So this, this was, uh, not just a, a point of protest. It was a point of radicalization, right? By the 1960s, the, the U.S. is largely seen as and considered an affluent society. And the, the contrast of being an affluent society, of railing on its uh, uh, leaders, political leaders, railing on and on about the inequities of communism. And not only could African-Americans not vote um, in the South, which was its own source of indignity, but across the North, black children are being mauled to death by rats. Black families are living in rat-infested housing. And so if ever there was a badge of inequality, of second-class citizenship, of utter and total marginalization and oppression, it is living in the most affluent society in the world, the so-called leader of the democratic world in housing that is infested by rats. And it seems like there's there's a relationship. We've as you mentioned, the police brutality is often remembered as a cause of, of riots and uprisings and not so much the housing, but they're kind of intimately connected because people are living at home with their family and being being terrorized by the conditions right. there and then being terrorized on the streets in the public space when they when they congregate with their neighbors. Right. Well, I mean, police brutality then and and now has always been about how do you contain black communities? How do you contain black people and keep them uh, hemmed in to the marginalized, oppressed communities that they live in. And so, you know, in the 1960s, that also is uh, was considered a badge of, of inequality, a badge of a subordinated citizenship. And when you couple that with the the conditions that had been allowed to grow and fester, in black communities because of the confluence of public policy and the the private practices of banks and the real estate industry in particular, then you were creating a, a situation that was very difficult for African-Americans to confront outside of explosive political protests because people had done all the things that they were supposed to do. People voted, people uh, elected representatives from um, increasingly dense black communities. And so people had some level of, of political representation and very little changed um, in these communities. In fact, the, the complaints of African-Americans were systematically ignored by the existing political structures and, and bodies. And so all of those things, the kind of poverty, underemployment, the substandard housing and the police that were there to hold it all together and to hold African-Americans at bay finally boiled over and exploded. It it shouldn't in retrospect be be so surprising that housing was so important for black people because housing is important for, for people. Mm-hmm. And, and 
you write that the the massive expansion of home home ownership to working in middle class white people after World War II made home ownership quote a fundamental feature of the cultural conceptions of citizenship and belonging. It also, of course, transformed the economy and politics mm-hmm. more generally, including very importantly the the geography of politics across metropolitan regions all over the country with this newly sharp divide between suburb and city all at a time when the Black Great Migration was reordering American political geography everywhere. How did housing become so foundational to 20th century American capitalism in so many different ways? So I think we have to go back and look at the policies of the 1930s and the New Deal and how those policies helped to open home ownership to tens of millions of people in ways that it had been relegated largely to uh, middle-class people prior uh, to that. Prior to New Deal um, legislation in the 1930s, in order to buy a home, you needed to put 50% of the total value of the house down, and you were allowed a five, maybe 10-year mortgage to pay off the balance. This was not an endeavor that most Americans could uh, participate in. And so by 1933, well into the depression of the 1930s, half of all mortgages were in default. And so in order to save the holdings of banks, the federal government, one, stepped in to help refinance uh, the other half of the the mortgages that were in risk of foreclosure but had not yet defaulted. And then the idea that uh, homeownership could be expanded in such ways as to to essentially try to bail out the U.S. economy, or at least be part of the solution to bailing out the U.S. economy, became a popular idea within the Roosevelt administration. And so the idea was to make homeownership cheaper than renting. Uh, And that way, it would become widely accessible to a much larger expansion of the population. And politically, I think as early as the the Hoover administration, there had been political discussions about the expansion of homeownership as a way of giving uh, American workers a stake in the system. There was talk, you know, if if you own a home, you know, there there are no communists among uh, homeowners. If you have a mortgage, you are too busy uh, to go on strike. So there are these sorts of ideas uh, as well. The political ideas about the role that homeownership could play in American society among ordinary people, but also the economic role uh, that it could it could play in helping to bail out the U.S. economy in um, depression, and and so by the end of the. By the end of the Second World War, these policies that are aimed at increasing homeownership go into full effect, and we get the um, kind of post-war suburban boom that many people are familiar with. And so part of this involves history that most people are familiar with. Um, From books like Crabgrass Frontier or Tom Sugru's like 
origins of the urban crisis. Or even the Ta-Nehisi Coates's, right. uh, the case for reparations, which I think helped, you know, this was the, I think that edition of the Atlantic that that story was featured in sold more copies than any other edition of that magazine historically. And it's a very old magazine in the U.S. And th this helped to open up the space to talk about the role of the FHA. The New York Times then did a, a bunch of editorials um, on the history of the FHA so that... The Federal Housing Administration. Yeah. So that among a certain group of the populace, the, the, the role of the federal government um, has become... People are much more familiar with that that history. And Richard Rothstein's best-selling best book, uh, The Color of Law, uh, which talks about uh, the specific role of the federal government in promoting policies of segregation, not just in the South, but also um, across the urban North. And so the the new federal policies that were intended to expand homeownership included the, the caveats that the properties that the, the federal government would insure, the mortgages of those properties that would be insured were suburban, had to be suburban, they had to be new properties, and that they had to be in what it described as racially homogenous uh, areas. Because you didn't want inharmonious groups Correct. proximate to one another. Correct. Uh, and so this, the, the federal government, in order to get banks to begin lending who uh, had been spurned by increasing rates of foreclosure, the federal government uh, invented what it described as mortgage insurance, that it would essentially insure the mortgages of uh, a wide range of people to take the risk of lending away from banks uh, with the hopes that that would make banks open to lending uh, uh, much more widely and with more abandon, which and they believe. And lowering the cost of borrowing. Right. Um, and also as as a way to to rapidly expand the number of people eligible for home ownership. And so, you know, there's there's the the development of of home ownership on a mass scale uh, and all of the consumption that goes with that, right? So you create houses, houses have to be filled with amenities. You create these houses in the suburbs. Now all of a sudden, you need cars uh, to get from. Uh, the suburban locations back to cities where many people are working. You also need to create highways to literally pave a road from uh, the outlying suburban areas back uh, to the cities. And so this all becomes uh, an economic engine for the U.S. economy. From refrigerators to cars. Refrigerators, washing machines, lawnmowers, all those, you know, cheesy uh, little commercial things that we see from the 1950s. Imagine that times, you know, 50 or 60 million. You can begin to see uh, how the U.S. Uh, economy is is a boon as a result of this enormous uh, consumption that is happening in U.S. society, and Black people are largely left out of it. So part of this is African Americans are 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 left out of the the suburban boon. But black people still want to be homeowners. And they want to be homeowners for the same reason that white people do. Um, and you write that black incomes are, in yes. many cases, rising during the New Deal period. Ab absolutely. Well, in the, in the 1940s and 1950s, as black people 
are leaving uh, rural areas and are leaving the South, their incomes are rising. They too, not in the same ways, but they too are beneficiaries of uh, a booming uh, post-war economy. And, and so part of that means that they also want to the space that is afforded with home ownership because African Americans are being crowded into uh, cities. They're being crowded into segregated neighborhoods. And so the idea of having your own space, more space is, uh, is attractive. But I think most importantly is the cultural significance of home ownership, which by the, the, the 1950s and certainly into the 1960s, um, being a homeowner is considered to be a cornerstone uh, of what the American dream means. It's a new, it's like a new s- civil sacrament alongside marriage. Yes, absolutely. And so to, to be excluded from that enterprise, you know, is not only about the financial costs of that, which are profound and which we can talk about and which the effects of continue to this day, but socially, uh, it puts you in a different status than your white citizen peers. And so this was, you know, this was one of the the consequences of of black exclusion was the 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 questioning about what African American uh citizenship really meant if black people could not partake in uh the enterprise of home ownership. You write quote the second ghetto and new post-war suburbs were one system. A white housing market would have actually been unintelligible without its black counterpart. Both relied on the other to become legible. End quote. The argument was as old as the housing market itself. The difference in the suburban and urban housing market was a natural phenomenon. In the former, value organically appreciated, while in the latter, it just as spontaneously declined. The physical distance between urban housing and suburban housing was amplified through developing social conceptions of an idealized white neighborhood and a despised black ghetto. A desire for inclusion in one and avoidance of the other added to or detracted from the value of a given property. I really, this analysis is really fascinating. In other words, that both both economically and socially and symbolically on all of these different countless levels, really, the suburbs depended upon being not the ghetto. Mm -hmm. Why is it so important, because you emphasize this a number of times in the book, to see this system as economically, socially, and politically unified, that, as the Kerner Commission put it, quote, what white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. So one of the things that I wanted to make clear with this book is that segregation is about profitability. Segregation is not just do white people want to live next to black people. It's not just mindless racial racial hatred. Uh, that beneath all of that, and there is mindless racial hatred, there is... You know, there's throughout the the early and mid 20th century, uh, white violence, the in in some cases outlandish 
actions of the federal government and reinforcing segregation. But I'm I was interested in getting beneath that. Like what that that in many ways is an effect, but what is the cause that is driving that is driving this? And it's about money. It's about profitability. In that way, I wanted to talk about this notion of uh, value, because this is what federal actors and the private sector say is driving their actions, the preservation of housing values, and the notion that the presence of Black people, even a single Black person, is destructive uh, to value. And so for me, part of that is understanding the motivation of homeowners is not just connected to their own personal desires about what is a good or, you know, a bad neighborhood, what is a good neighborhood to be in, what is a bad neighborhood uh, to avoid, but is to really think through what homeownership means even beyond its cultural significance in the U.S. This is a country where you are guaranteed nothing in life. You are not guaranteed job. You're not guaranteed health care. You're not guaranteed an education. You are not guaranteed anything. You may have the ability to go work and to make money, which may or may not allow you a, a range of activities and consumption over the course of over the course of your life. And so in this country, your ability to personally accumulate wealth is what determines your quality of life. It's what determines the quality of life of the people in your family. And owning a home is, for most Americans, the way, the central way they go about wealth accumulation, aside from their jobs. And so whether that house accrues in value is incredibly important in whether you are able to finance your child's education, whether you are able to weather an unforeseen financial crisis, uh, whether you have a comfortable retirement or any retirement at all. And because of the absence of a welfare state and your own investment in this house that determines the trajectory of so much of your life and your children's life, it created a certain hysteria, it still does, around the rising value of that house, whether or not that house is an asset or whether it's a debt burden. And so this, trying to understand the role of the house in the lives of ordinary Americans is also important in understanding why there is such hysteria around the protection of its value. And that, to me, was an important point to try to, to, to underline. And so often in the, in, the, in the U.S., you know, people have tried to talk about the market as this kind of colorblind space where, you know, decisions are simply driven by supply and demand. And so what I wanted to, to show is how the market is actually reflective of us. It reflects the, the biases, the prejudices, the racism that is at the core of American society. And so what does this mean 
in real life. In real life, it means that for white people who own homes, there is the possibility of the home becoming an asset and accruing in value over time. For Black people, it means that there is a wariness about the presence of Black people, but it also means that even property in Black hands is valued differently than property in white hands. And so in this way, it is impossible to extract the the dynamics of race from the U.S. housing market that not only has consequences for a particular homeowner in this situation, but it has consequences in the absence of a welfare state for the trajectory of the lives of African-Americans whose houses are not valued in the same way that uh, white houses are valued and whose neighborhoods are not valued in the same way, which means that the disadvantage for black people at this point is not only distinct, but it is forever that the this racial wealth gap that we talk about that stems from the differences in uh, home ownership between African-Americans and white Americans cannot actually be overcome because of the long history of the differential um, and the way that uh, black housing um, is forever seen as inferior to white housing. And so household it wasn't, wealth like literally resides in the home. Yes. So it wasn't just a, a question of the cultural conception uh, of home ownership, which was important, but it was also about the literal house itself being instrumental to the success or failure in life in American society. Well, I, I want to ask you a follow-up on this because you have a really interesting theoretical mm-hmm. analysis, and then I want to get into more of like the meat of the history of your mm-hmm. book. But you, you you write about how one thing that was really important with housing is the way that it simultaneously played these these multiple roles. It became the most important source of household wealth while also being the place where the family, this core institution of social reproduction, was literally and is literally housed. Mm-hmm. And you write, quote, mid-century narratives of normative whiteness embodied in conceptions of the suburban-based nuclear family shaped the perceptions of home as an expression of use value within white communities. Conversely, developing narratives concerning perceived domestic dysfunction within black living spaces, whether non-normative family structures or poverty, or dilapidated living structures, cast black dwellings as incapable of achieving the status of home, thus reducing them to their base exchange value. I want to talk a little about your Marxist analysis here. How did racism help forge this tight link between real estate's use and exchange values, both of which play such an important role in a dynamic role that kind of feeds off each aspect of it and then how did how did it constitute black proximity as a as a basic threat to both mm-hmm. in this inseparably intertwined way and then finally what does that all tell us about how capitalism or really any economic order is always also fundamentally a social system i think that you know when we talk about <clears throat> racial capitalism today you know, we can we can get into the debates or discussions about the origins of racism and capitalism, which came first. 
that sort of thing. All the 17th century analysis. But here you see how capitalism is completely raced. Racism, racial discrimination, racial thinking shapes the entire housing market in such ways that not only is there the, the financial issues at stake and whether a house is seen as an asset, a debt burden, uh, is it seen as a place where value can grow or is it seen purely for its extractive value? But we see how that also shapes the cultural conceptions and the popular conceptions of uh, what home means uh, for people. And so part of the reason why white housing during this period has value is because of the sense of uh, the normativity of the white home space. And that is part of what its value is. And the further it is away from uh, the perceived dysfunction of Black families, Black neighborhoods, Black communities, and Black people themselves, the more that it actually accrues in value. And simultaneously, when we look at what is happening in cities, African-American housing, its value is seen purely in the way that it can be extracted from for those who uh, own these properties. And so when I talked earlier uh, about the disincentive for landlords to actually maintain their property, uh, this is just purely about exchange value, right? And I write it at at some point in the book uh, about Baltimore, I think it's in the first chapter, uh, how at one point landlords took the bathroom out of single residency uh, occupancies, so SROs, which are one room, it's like boarding houses. They removed the bathroom facilities from the single room to create another living space and dig trenches in the back of uh, the boarding house structures as to create latrines, right? And this is where, you know, people will uh, relieve themselves. And now you've created two potential uh, residences for earning. This is housing at its most base extractive uh, form in which the, the, the social use, the social function of housing as a heart in a heartless world or a, a, whatever your critique of, of uh, the nuclear family or family structures may be, that the, the, the home as a refuge, any notion of that really ceases to exist. This is it's just like the minimal social reproductive functions. Yes. Like, can will this protect you from death? Maybe right. Anything to avoid a potential problem with homelessness, <laughs> you know. But that that's it. Home as as a source of comfort, as a site of communion, that has nothing to do with it. This is about pure extraction, and so much of black housing is viewed in this way, which is why. You, the, the problem with rats was not, you know, some sort of issue that no one knew about until all of a sudden that there were rats. Uh, this was widely understood. This was, uh, if you look at the, the black press and black newspapers, black popular culture, uh, people are, are referencing this uh, widely. Gil Scott Heron's, you know, famous song, Whitey on the Moon, begins with a vignette about uh, rat bites. His sister rat, his, his sister Nell, has been bitten by 
uh, a rat in an apartment dwelling. And so this but was Whitey's part on of, the moon. but Whitey's on the moon, exactly. But the, so this was part of the, the everyday experiences of, of, of African Americans. And, and one of the, the most harmful impacts of this systematic effort at uh, disinvestment over a long period of time is that for the, the larger society, the reasons behind the conditions in Black communities gets lost. And so when no one understands what FHA policy is, when no one understands what federal, state, and local uh, initiatives that lead to uh, policy initiatives that create incentives around disinvestment, when people don't understand that, when no one has minutes from the city meetings where there is the discussion to limit trash pickup to once a week, even as the population is doubling and tripling, when no one has access to the underpinnings of uh, what leads to substandard conditions in a community, then all you're left with is the residue, you know? So if you're Joe Blow white family just driving through a black neighborhood and you look at the the buildings in disrepair, you look at the trash on the streets, and it's just like, well, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they just do basic, you know... What are their values? Yes, exactly. And that is the 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 residue, the significance of these policies that continues uh, to have life. This is the reason why, you know, Newsday, a publication in Long Island, just recently, very recently, in the last, um, you know, three or four months, did an expose on the racism within the real estate, the, among real estate brokers in Long Island, New York, and the ways in which they steer... Um, black people towards black neighborhoods and steer white people away from African American communities. And it's based in these same uh, um, 20th century, a hundred year ago ideas that black people are dirty, that black people are the source of the substandard conditions in poor and working class African American neighborhoods. And ultimately, they have a deleterious impact on uh, property values and must be avoided. And once again, because property values determine the quality of one's life and family's life over the, the course of a lifetime, then these things matter and they have importance. And the racism is rash of, of these individual yes. actors is is rational because the racism from the the FHA and the realtors a century ago through today has taken on a materiality yes. where black presence does or yes. can at least de- still lead to decreased value. Right. And it definitely did during the period that you're that you're talking about. Yeah. With I mean, blockbusting and things like that. It was or it was it was weaponized to No, to- absolutely. And even even today, the Brookings Institute did a, a study on housing values um, that showed that overall, the value of homes in black majority neighborhoods are six percent less than the value of homes in in white neighborhoods. And and in some some ways, there there's just basic anecdotal anecdotal uh, evidence in Chicago, for example, in the six zero six five three zip code, which is a Southside neighborhood. Um, it's Bronzeville, 
uh, south of the the downtown business district of Chicago, you have homes that are less than a mile from Lake Michigan. That gorgeous homes, yes, brand Stunning. new or or you know rehab rehabilitated homes that are expensive for the population that live there. They're yeah. you know between six and eight hundred thousand dollars. Those same houses. Five miles north would be over a million dollars. They are valued less because they are in black majority neighborhoods. And all of the cultural conceptions of what that means, crime, the presence of poor and working class black people, has a dollar figure on it. And it's substantially less than the dollar figure for housing in mostly white or exclusively white neighborhoods. And so this is how the economics works together as a foundation for the 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 cultural effects the popular the 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 popular notions of how these things underline what we think of in terms of working class families what we think of in terms of rich or middle-class white people, they're underlined by the economic realities that are borne out in the housing market. Let's get into the, the heart of your book. Sure. You define predatory inclusion as, quote, how African-American homebuyers were granted access to conventional real estate practices and mortgage financing, but on more expensive and comparatively unequal terms. Explain this concept and how it elucidates this history you're describing, this shift from the pre-civil rights era system of segregated redlining, which we've mostly mm-hmm. been discussing so far, to this ostensibly colorblind but still very much segregated pillaging of poor black people through these today little-remembered programs. I had never mm-hmm. heard of them, these housing and urban development programs to subsidize poor black people, or I guess – officially poor people Mm -hmm. buying homes. And then more generally, how was it that racial liberalism's Mm -hmm. diagnosis of the problem led to inclusion within homeownership being embraced as the solution the way it was? Mm -hmm. So predatory inclusion for me was a way to try to bridge the, the past with the new realities created in the aftermath of of redlining. And the reason why I thought that was important, because in with, with the official efforts to uh, end redlining, there's very little mention of the impact of racial discrimination in the past, which means in practice that there are no actual remedies um, that are supported uh, to undo the racially motivated public policy private practices of the of the past in order to repair the damage that has been done in order to move forward with any sort of success success meaning uh african americans are housed in an equitable way instead there is the end of one set of policies racial discrimination and the beginning of, of new policies, as if the the past actions of the federal government, the past actions of the banking and real estate industries had no impact. And so for me, it was important to show how 
uh, decades of disinvestment, decades of segregation, and the uh, physical distress that that created uh, in the properties in Black majority uh, uh, neighborhoods then became the evidence for banks, for real, you know, the various institutions connected to the real estate industry uh, to say that these are the reasons why these neighborhoods should be treated differently in the marketplace, should be treated with, with caution. Look at the condition of these buildings. We can't possibly give these people the same terms that we give to white families in the suburbs or white families in exclusive, expensive urban neighborhoods. Because look at the quality of the neighborhood. Look at the lack of amenities. Look at the physical distress of the the, the building. Look at the uh, look at the poverty as if these things just developed and arose um, from out of nowhere and not the policies and practices of these institutions for decades before. But those became the visual evidence for why some communities should be designated as subprime, as why as to why some people should be designated as as subprime. And so that allows for a certain level of predation that otherwise would not be tolerated. Because segregation really has this role of naturalizing and normalizing racial inequality. Right. No, absolutely. So what I was describing before, the conditions in in Black neighborhoods, those have now become attributed to Black people and not the public policies uh, of the Federal Housing Administration, not the policies of of banks, um, which just had a blanket policies of not lending uh, to African Americans in in certain neighborhoods or African Americans uh, at all. It does not become attributed to the actions uh, of real estate brokers. It becomes purely seen as the the cultural or behavioral phenomena uh, of Black people. Uh, themselves and the consequences of what that means in uh, distressed black neighborhoods then gets articulated as higher rates of interest, um, as uh, other different uh, uh, methods of dealing with these populations once housing discrimination is considered uh, illegal. And so for me, that captured the predatory and inclusive aspect uh, of post-redlining U.S. And so I also wanted to use that as a platform to talk about uh, racial liberalism. And so racial liberalism, in the way that I am describing it, is essentially the recognition that there was some section of the U.S. political establishment that recognized that race discrimination is actually real. It's not, we can't just reduce all these things to, well, African Americans are just disproportionately poor uh, compared to other groups of people. Thus, we don't need to talk about race. They accept that racism uh, is a problem. It is a barrier for uh, African Americans. But in many ways, that is the extent of their critique of American society. It's like an ideational account of uh, of racism. Yes. No, absolutely. Bad thoughts in, in, in bad or ignorant people's heads. Yeah. And that it's real and it's it's profound and something. Yeah. And, you know, and that in many ways is is better than those who say 
well, race has nothing to do with any of this. That the FHA made no decisions based on race. These were just purely economic. Uh, uh, what an rational... unfortunate coincidence that so many right. black people were in the red line neighborhood. Yes. Well, the, you know, these are poor, poor people. These are mostly poor, dispossessed people. And so there are all sorts of explanations for this, but there's a, a recognition among uh, a, a layer of people who otherwise are proud Americans who think that the United States is a fantastic society, but that it has this one deformation, right? It has this one problem, this this issue of race, that if it could just get over that, then Black people too could enjoy the fruits and the benefits of U.S. society. And so for them, the problem really does come down to exclusion, that if we could just stop African-Americans from being excluded and thus being included into the institutions and practices that have created this robust white middle class, that have created the white, the American dream uh, for white America, that have created this affluent society, then that is the kind of final hurdle that the U.S. needs to get over to become uh, the greatest, you know, society on earth. You know, and and George Romney, who was Nixon's secretary of HUD. A fascinating uh, character. Yeah. Who's the former governor of of Michigan. He's the governor at, at when the Detroit riots, the most destructive uh, rebellion in U.S. history, unfolds in 1967. George Romney helped to uh, win fair housing legislation for the state of Michigan during his tenure. And so he absolutely believed that racism was a problem and that the U.S. was the, the greatest country on earth and that the issue was removing racism from the law and allowing African-Americans to benefit from the same institutions and practices that uh, had made America great for, for white people. And what I try to show in the book is that what these people miss is that these racial practices are completely embedded in the institutions that they say, if we just change the law, will allow Black people to flourish. And the real estate industry and the banking industries, these two industries exemplify that. But there is not a single point in time where we can look at a golden age of real estate in the 20th century that is not completely complicit and embedded with racial thinking, with eugenics, uh, and, and racial practices that create this kind of material Differenti- differentiation for African Americans, and and how did this all shape the the program at the heart of of your analysis that's created, if I remember correctly, by the HUD Act of mm-hmm. 1968? So the the HUD Act um, of of 1968 is Lyndon Johnson's last greatest legislative a- achievement, and it is intended to, in the kind of bombastic, uh, hyperbolic uh, Lyndon Johnson way to end the housing crisis um, in the United States. It's legislation that promises to create 26 million new and used units of 
uh, housing within a 10-year period, which would have been absolute. There's no precedent for that level of housing production in American history. At the core of the legislation um, was a new uh, program intended to transform low-income renters into homeowners. And so none of this is specifically directed at African-Americans because that that's not how federal policy works, where you do special legislation for particular groups of, of people. Uh, but everyone understood that these were programs intended to uh, increase the rate of Black homeownership for the same reasons that had been discussed uh, about white homeowners in the 1930s, which is we have to give black people a piece of the action. Lyndon or Richard Nixon went so far as to say if they own their own neighborhoods or own their own homes, they won't burn the cities down. So there was a clear uh, connection between the the urban rebellions throughout the 1960s uh, and this push to increase the number uh, of African-American um, homeowners. That was an important part of it. It wasn't the only part of it. By the, the late 1960s, um, white homeownership was beginning to saturate, meaning that all of the white people who could buy homes had largely bought homes. And the realtors and home builders well, yeah, bef- wanted, be- wanted be- a new market. Because of the reasons that we talked yeah. about before. Home ownership and in, in the, the housing industry writ large had become a central cog um, in the American economy. But there are like contradictory interests here because you write that the home builders wanted, you know, claimed to be civil rights champions right. and wanted to build homes for black people in the suburbs, right. uh, which is which... not why they wanted to do it. But and then the realtors wanted, liked this HUD program to build, to, to, to sell existing housing to black people in the cities, but did not want to desegregate the suburbs. Absolutely. And so these, these were the contradictory objectives uh, within the, the housing Industry. I mean, the the National Association of Home Builders tried to paint itself as a civil right, as as a, a supporter of fair housing and uh, civil rights initiatives. And in in this case, they were because they they understood that you for them for their bottom line, which is all about new builds. You couldn't do that in the in the city. It was too expensive. No one wanted, in the midst of urban uprisings and riots, no one was particularly interested in expanding urban renewal um, programs that were aimed at destruction of existing Black homes. Is that going to be another uh, potential flashpoint for, for new uprisings? No one wanted to do that. And so this intersected with other political arguments about the dispersal of black communities that perhaps that is a way to 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 relieve some of the tension in cities and so this program the HUD Act overall was intended to um, be a bill building program in the in the suburbs but the realtors also had a strong, uh, lobby. The National Association of Real Estate Boards was a very powerful organization that had been in existence since the 1920s. Um, today remains one of the, the largest lobbying uh, organizations. Now it's called the National Association of Realtors. Realtors TM. Yes, yes, <laughs> most definitely TM. Um, and, and so they wanted to focus on the existing housing market for two reasons. One is because that's what real estate agents do. They their their business is to sell homes that already exist. But two, 
there is a, a belief that there is an ingrained belief within um, the real estate industry of separation, of segregation, of the belief that the presence of black people in and around uh, white housing, white neighborhoods will destroy the value uh, of those homes. And so this was the, the, the change in political philosophy was, well, maybe we can have black homeownership, right? The market needs a boost. Um, we have saturated white homeowners. We have a small but burgeoning black middle class that has the income to support uh, homeownership. And because of the outmigration of white people, um, there's a crisis of abandonment in cities. And so perhaps black people can own these homes. So there was a willing, willingness to allow for black homeownership in a way that didn't exist in the 1930s or 40s when the FHA first formulated its policies to exclude black people. But it was on the condition that the market continued to be segregated. And on the condition that the 1968 Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, which is passed the same year as the HUD Act, yeah. basically goes unenforced. Yeah. And so, and it does. This idea about black home ownership begins a little bit earlier with urban renewal practices and uh, the displacement of, of black people, many of whom can go into public housing uh, projects, but because of rising incomes, uh, some can't. And so that is when the, the kind of first experimental ideas about black home ownership sponsored by the FHA uh, take place. But this gathers momentum um, through the 1960s. But yes, it is contingent on maintaining uh, segregation. So when the Fair Housing Act is passed, and it is essentially toothless when it comes to enforcing the civil rights of African-Americans against um, racial discrimination in the housing market, whether as buyers or, or whether as renters. So HUD is given the funds to create a civil rights division, which is in, given the powers to enforce fair housing. And it's given $6 million to do this, $5 million of which is to go to staffing and setting up an office, which leaves a million dollars for 120 employees to investigate every claim of racial discrimination in the United States. So on its face, it was not intended to, in any serious way, deal with the issues of uh, housing discrimination. And it hasn't since. There was also, you were talking about all the, the various motives behind an openness to to black homeownership that wasn't there a few decades prior by by the late 1960s. And you also cite Lyndon Johnson as saying, quote, owning a home can increase responsibilities and stake out a man's place in his community. The man who owns a home has something to be proud of and good reason to protect and preserve it. You mentioned Herbert Hoover mm -hmm. earlier saying something similar. And it's this idea that, that deviant subjects mm – -hmm can be remade into model citizens yes. if they are made into owners. Explain this, how, how home ownership was supposed to, to elevate Black people from a debased dependency mm -hmm. to a sufficient independency, because this is a clear kind of dividing line throughout right. American history. I mean, some of it is, is ideological, and some of it these people believe um, I think the ideological or political aspect of this is that 
politically, Johnson does not believe um, he can push through a public housing program. Public housing by the late 1960s has been discredited. The effects of the way that the program was organized um, in the 1940s have come home to roost, essentially, by requiring that the maintenance for public housing come out of the rents um, for the residents begins to fall apart as Congress continues to lower the income requirements for residents. And so because of the constant lowering of income requirements, the public housing population is dwindling um, and becoming poorer. Uh, and so it at some point reaches the it we reach the saturation where um, there are just simply no funds available uh, from the re- residents to repair the the buildings. But here this is another example of, you know, who the hell knows that? Who knows this, you know, weird uh, policy requirement that Congress has made no separate line of appropriation to deal with in in some cases, extremely complex, Uh, complexly engineered buildings, but that the money is just supposed to come from the residents who by law are required to become poorer and poorer over time. So no one knows that. All you see are the deterioration of the the public housing projects. They become icons of black pathology instead of what they are, which are exemplars of, of, of just total state abandonment. Yes. And malfeasance. Yeah. And so in this context, Lyndon Johnson is able to get more money, you know, for for units of of public housing, but that is also contingent on uh, increasing privatization and uh, pursuing programs that will allow residents to buy uh, their public housing units, relying much more on the private sector to um, play a role in public housing, whether it's the management of of the housing complexes, um, that sort of thing. And so within this, promoting homeownership becomes a more realistic political policy because it's something that Republicans and Democrats uh, agree on. And Johnson especially wants to pursue this because in the in the way that the HUD program is established, because he's also trying to deal with a growing deficit that is being driven by the Vietnam War. And so what happens with the 1968 uh, HUD Act is not only this small homeownership program, but also Fannie Mae uh, is privatized, which means that all of its debt uh, is taken off of the books. And the way that the, the program is structured is that there's no big hit uh, that the the federal government will have to account for, and so there's also deficit management underlying the the, the particular way that this program is structured, and there is the ideological component um, which the Republicans love, but the Democrats love as well, which is this idea that with ownership comes responsibility. Uh, that if, as I said before, if people own their own homes, then uh, they won't be destructive, um, uh, participating in rebellious activities that are, in their eyes, destroying the cities that African Americans live in. So there, there are multiple, uh, and they're not wrong uh, that homeownership can have a disciplinary 
effect Absolutely. on people. Absolutely. I mean, it, the suburbanization and private home ownership and the nuclear normative nuclear family norms embedded within it are the kind of material and political economic substrate of the new right. <laughs> well, the the you know the working class white rebels of the 1930s who become the homeowners of the 1940s and 50s are the evidence that we should pursue this line of reasoning. So there is a connection between the two where black people got left out uh, in the 1930s. There's an effort to bring them in um, in the 1960s. Well, it's fascinating because, yeah, like I've, I've thought a lot about how this housing system created the the material basis for for the new right, but it also created mm-hmm. the 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 new rights one of the new rights others the, mm-hmm. the the spectacle of of urban black pathology yes no absolutely and it's interesting how this program then is is raised to include african americans in the enterprise uh, of home ownership but the way that it's structured almost exclusively through the private sector of course even though it's kind of touted as a government program then leads to the conditions that reopen the pathways to the intense pathologizing uh, of black families, particularly black women, as the the program disintegrates in the early 1970s. Yeah. I want to talk about the program's disintegration and returning to Romney, Mm -hmm. you write, quote, Romney embodied the trajectory from post-war liberalism Mm -hmm. to questioning whether government had any role in ending poverty. And you write, quote, about post-war racial liberalism in general, quote, the premise of racial liberalism and post-war liberalism in general was that the systems and institutions of the country were strong enough to bestow the political, economic, social riches of American society onto all who were willing to work hard and commit themselves to a better future. In trying to expand home ownership to include black property owners, racial liberals upheld the market as a space impervious to race, where economic fitness, above all, would prevail. Instead, the supposedly colorblind market continued to produce different experiences and outcomes for white and black people. To avert a more systematic engagement with the multiple problems concerning low-income homeownership, the critics remained focused on the black families and, in particular, the black women who were a focus point in the urban existing housing program. How did the very premise of racial liberalism, its proposal to rely on incorporation into a system that was fundamentally oppressive, how did that ultimately, when it all failed, almost logically require the pathologization of black people and black women in particular? The thing with with the racial liberals is that they didn't see any fundamental problems, right? The problem was exclusion, not an interrogation of the institutions themselves. And so when you combine a program of these these housing programs were essentially um, $200 down payment, regardless of the value of the house. Interest rates capped at 1%, regardless of the value of the house. And your mortgage was 20% of your income, again, regardless of the value of the house. And so 
at no point when people were looking for homes and and you have to go through a real estate agent in order to access the uh, properties that are eligible um, for uh, this particular subsidy. So the real estate agent is your point of entry. Uh, Once a person was matched with the house, then a mortgage broker uh, was contacted by the real estate agent to see if they uh, would finance uh, the home based on the the, uh, new HUD subsidy. So then the mortgage banker contacts um, HUD uh, to verify that this person is, is eligible. And so at no point does the actual prospective home buyer interface or discuss uh, with any federal agent at all. It is a system, uh, a program that is organized almost exclusively uh, through these operatives in real estate. And so at this point, you know, the real estate industry has been completely complicit in residential segregation, uh, has been completely complicit in tying uh, race to to risk, tying race to better outcome, tying race to uh, worse outcome for African-Americans. So despite this very long history of an investment in segregation, an investment of a racially divided real estate market, um, the, the the federal government allows their robust participation with almost no regulatory checks in place to make sure that the patterns that the real estate industry had established for decades would be interrupted or would not be able to continue in this new um, federal program. Um, and so it meant immediately that as soon as the, the, the federal government and the, the, the linchpin to this program was now the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, would insure every mortgage in an urban area. And so this meant that for mortgage bankers, for realtors, this was a no-lose proposition. As one official put it, this was like doing business in heaven. You could not lose money. And so... Under those circumstances, you get real estate speculators who are buying up these properties that are in disrepair in dilapidated states, doing um, cosmetic repairs, cosmetic rehabilitations, and then recruiting from public housing developments that are literally crumbling around the residents. In in St. Louis, an FHA, uh, a real estate uh, agent connected to these programs, um, sent out thousands of postcards to residents in the Pruitt-Igoe homes asking them if they wanted to own their own home. And so people were vulnerable to being manipulated because of the the wider circumstances under which they were living. They were looking for more space. They were looking for the same things that, that white people have always looked for in becoming homeowners. And when they were sold these homes that had been cosmetically repaired, that fell apart almost as quickly uh, as these people moved into them, many of them, many of them walked away. And so the federal government investigators, instead of looking at how it was that that properties in almost complete disrepair are being sold to people 
through the facilitation of these new homeownership programs, they become much more focused on the Black women who are purchasing these homes with the use of the HUD uh, subsidy. And they become even more focused on the homemaking skills of these women as explanations for the conditions of these houses. Not the manipulation, uh, the fraudulent circumstances under which they had been sold, as many of these women were uh, making known to legal aid attorneys, were making known in uh, uh, newspaper exposés, but they became focused on um, poor homemaking skills as an explanation for their condition. You have a quote from Georgia Republican Representative mm. Ben Blackburn, which is mm-hmm. exemplary of, of this. Quote, the problem is that we have been putting families into homes who have no sense of responsibility of homeownership, and that is where the problem has been. And that is the intrinsic problem in the program. Is that not true? We found welfare mothers whose sole income was aid for dependent children, plus other benefits that come from that status in life. And they were put in housing, presumably as owners, and yet they could not even fix a faucet washer. Have we concluded there are some people who should not be put in the status of home purchasers? Can we not conclude that there are some people who do not have the sense of responsibility or the economic income to own a home? I think it's, of course, a legitimate question to ask whether homeownership is an appropriate program for ending poverty, right? I think that that's a reasonable question to ask. But embedded within the rest of that are really just a bunch of racist stereotypes and caricatures of the fitness and responsibility of black women, which of course is quite ironic, you know, during these congressional hearings where people like Blackburn um, and other, you know, rich elite white men are complaining um, about the housekeeping abilities of the black women who of course have been keeping house for these white men um, and their children and their families. Uh, yeah. What domestic since, duties does that uh, congressman have? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, since since the age of slavery into uh, the contemporary moment when these hearings were uh, unfolding. But this was really about deflecting um, any real uh, investigation of why the federal government was uh, subsidizing and sponsoring homes sold in complete disrepair uh, to black, poor and working class families because HUD and the FHA, the FHA becomes a subsidiary uh, of HUD in 1965. Prior to that, it had been its own independent organization, but HUD forms in 1965 and over uh, a course of, of, of years in the late 1960s, the FHA is finally under the, the leadership of the Department of Housing and Urban uh, development. And so there had been, when homeownership was expanding in uh, the suburbs in the 1940s and 50s, the FHA was always known for its very stringent requirements in home inspections and the the qualifications that a house needed um, before it could receive this, this whole very, appraisal process. Correct. Before it could receive this very lucrative mortgage insurance. And all of that was abandoned with the uh, with the the 
the urban program in the 1960s and the, the early 1970s. And to some extent, it couldn't have worked in the same way because the suburban housing that was being appraised in the 40s and 50s was new. In the urban market, these were properties that were very old and because of previous FHA practices had had been disinvested for decades. And so you couldn't use the same qualifications, but you could use some. And the the FHA essentially threw up its hands and put no uh, standards or requirements in the appraisal of these new homes. And so some of the, the reasons I talk about in the book uh, have to do with the racial attitudes of uh, FHA em- employees. Many of them believe that Black people were undeserving uh, of these uh, programs. Because they, d- they didn't like the shift in their mission at all. No, no. There was quite a bit of hostility. Many of them believe that Black people should be happy with any housing that they receive through the program. But perhaps more insidiously is that the FHA and HUD relied on part-time real estate brokers uh, to do the appraisals. So sometimes brokers who are in business in a in a neighborhood are also empowered with appraising, meaning that they actually have an interest in inflating the value of the homes in those neighborhoods because when they're not part-time appraising, then they're trying to sell homes in the same neighborhood. And uh, of course, real estate brokers make their money on commission. And so the more expensive a house is, regardless of its condition, they are looking out uh, to pad their uh, commission. So all of these kinds of conflicts of interest pervade uh, these problems. And they're known. They're the first investigations into the programs begin as early as 1970. The bill is passed in August of 1968. So almost as soon as it actually becomes law, there are questions about conflicts of interest. There are questions about a lack of professionalism. Uh, there are questions about the, the kind of shoddy uh, appraisal practices, and nothing is done uh, because um, people are making money off of this, uh, off of these programs, and because most of the the, the victims who are focused up, up who are, who become a focal point in the the newspaper coverage are black women on welfare. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism by Martine Arboleda. Planetary Mine rethinks the politics and territoriality of resource extraction, especially as the mining industry becomes reorganized in the form of logistical networks and East Asian economies emerge as the new pivot of the capitalist world system. 
through an exploration of the ways in which mines in the Atacama Desert of Chile have become intermingled with an expanding constellation of megacities, ports, banks, and factories across East Asia, this book rethinks uneven geographical development in the era of supply chain capitalism. Arguing that extraction entails much more than the mere spatiality of mine shafts and pits, planetary mine points towards the expanding webs of infrastructure, of labor, of finance, and of struggle that drive resource-based industries in the 21st century. Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism by Martin Arboleda. Out now from Verso Books. As you mentioned earlier, for, for, for many white Americans, real estate was this extremely important appreciating asset. But but the way these programs function that you're writing about is that they made real estate into a mechanism through which black people's, particularly poor black women's wealth could be extracted, property not as wealth, but all debt and responsibility, a vector for expropriation. Is the role of the pathologization of black women then to to legitimate that expropriation? I think in some ways it diverts the attention away from the program in general. And that allows for these kinds of extractive practices to continue much longer than one would imagine they would have if white people had been the primary victims of this. So I guess maybe yes and no. I'm not sure if that was the objective, but it certainly was um, the outcome because the, you know, if these kinds of nefarious practices become known as early as, as 1970, they go on really until in 1973, Nixon imposes a, a moratorium on subsidized uh, housing. But one of the main low-income homeownership programs uh, was not subsidized. It was Section 221D2, uh, which did not receive a subsidy. What it did allow for were uh, 40-year mortgages. Um, and that was the device used to make lower monthly payments. And so that program continued. And it became the focal point of both activism and investigations in the in the in 1975 uh the Chicago Tribune in particular won a Pulitzer Prize covering uh aspects of the kind of new iteration of crisis um in 1975 where it became clear that mortgage banks were engaging in what activists called fast foreclosure uh as a way to capture fees on the front end uh, of a real estate deal where mortgage banks get uh, a fee for originating a loan um, and then capturing money on the back end of the deal with closing costs. Uh, and so in order to repeat this process as much as possible, they would foreclose, initiate proceedings for foreclosures very quickly, even though part of the arrangement with HUD 
for the low-income homeownership programs was that the federal government would insure the mortgages on the condition that the mortgage lenders go out of their way to not foreclose on people and to find ways to keep people uh, in their homes, including accepting late payments, uh, making forbearance agreements. And so HUD just ignored all of those rules that were a requirement for their uh, mortgage banks, ignored those rules that were a requirement for their engagement in the program. HUD allowed them to do so. And so they engage in this this process of rapidly foreclosing uh, on people. Then real estate agents would pick up the house that had been foreclosed upon quickly and initiate the process all over again. And so these, you know, these practices continued uh, even as the focus on the morality and fitness uh, of Black women intensified over the period. And those practices then remake the the spectacle of pathological ghetto that legitimates the very activities that are yes and, making and destroying the the black ghetto and that continue to um, legitimize in the broader eyes of the public why white suburbanites want to keep black people out of, of their communities because look at these people that that is the height of irresponsibility foreclosure right and all of the kind of the the visual optics of what we have come to describe as urban crisis um, are hastened uh, by these pr- um, by these uh, practices from real estate and and mortgage banking operatives, and that becomes part of the explanation as to why uh, suburban uh, communities wish to continue uh, to keep black people at bay. And it's like also the context for the most paradigmatically, definitionally dehumanizing sort of discourse of animality. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. These are animals. And it fits with, um, it it, uh, helps to create an opportunity for the Nixon administration to pursue its political objectives of shifting control back to states um, when it comes to decision making about the distribution uh, of social of social welfare, the new federalism, yes, uh, which is about the fetish of small government, you know, around some things. We love big government when it comes to war. We love big government when it comes to bailing out financial institutions. But when it comes to the distribution uh, of social welfare, then we want government to be small and local. And so Nixon uses the spectacle uh, of the homeownership programs uh, to denounce HUD, to essentially denounce HUD as the uh, nation's largest slumlord, and to also say that uh, these are problems that no government agency, no bureaucracy can possibly deal with, which, again, reinforces the idea that these are problems intrinsic uh, to Black families and to Black communities, and uses that as the basis upon which uh, to impose this moratorium uh, on all subsidized housing in 1973. And then that feeds into what is already a an evolving discussion about the role of welfare, about the the role of uh, Johnson's welfare state, and whether that 
uh, is something that should be dismantled, which of course then opens the space for a new discussion about an urban underclass, which begins to emerge in the late 1970s. Yeah. So let me pause you there because I want to talk about how, how was the pathologization of, of Black people instrumentalized to stigmatize the welfare state? You have a quote from from Nixon from the RNC in 1968, quote, for the past five years, we have been deluged by government programs for the unemployed, programs for the cities, programs for the poor. And we have reaped from these programs an ugly harvest of frustrations, violence, and failure across the land. And now our opponents will be offering more of the same, more billions for government jobs, government housing, government welfare. I say it's time to quit pouring billions of dollars into programs that have failed in the United States of America. How was it that government action to aid Black people was rendered hyper-visible, while the private role in this program that ended up being disastrous in many ways was rendered invisible? And the kind of inverse happens with suburbanization, right, where the the where the, the public role is rendered Absolutely. in creating all this white wealth is yeah. rendered invisible, while the private initiative right. is rendered hyper-visible. Right. How was it that government so quickly gets framed as the problem rather than the solution in the case of housing programs, but also more more generally. And and how did that idea that government was the problem at the end of the great society relate to the argument that poor black people were the problem too? Because they're really deeply interlinked. Tight, tightly wound. Yeah. I mean, the role of the, the private sector in the devolution of these housing programs disappears almost um, completely. And, you know, I think, I think that that is part of a, a, a larger phenomenon. I think you see that clearly when reading something like Richard Rothstein's book, uh, The Color of Law, which, you know, in some ways I like the book and I teach the book in my classes on, on housing, but there's a way in which it kind of amplifies this idea that the government the government is the genesis of uh, all of these problems, when in reality, it's the the relationship between the state and uh, the private sector that create these problems. And the, all the way back to the 1920s, yes, the FHA and the realtors. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, when, when Roosevelt is coming up with these policies, as is always the case with the federal government, you know, you want to create new housing policies, you go to the quote unquote experts, which are people from the real estate industry, and you recruit them into government to create these new laws. And when they come into government, they bring the quote unquote best practices from their industry into um, public policy making. And what were the best practices? Racial segregation to protect the value of property. And so that is why that practice is at the heart of is at the heart of federal policy and so i think that you know there is an uh an unrelenting ideological war by the end of the 1960s that government programs have gone too far that african americans are essentially uh being bribed uh to stop uh, participating uh, in riots by what Being these rewarded for bad behavior. Yes, no, exactly by 
what they see as the ever-expanding Johnson welfare state. And so part of what I was also interested in doing with this book was highlighting the private aspects of the Johnson welfare state, right? That, you know, I th- I think even the conservative critics are clear, but I think even among liberals is this idea that Johnson essentially uh, took the framework of the New Deal and imposed it on the situation in the, the 1960s to create a New Deal of sorts for Black people. And, you know, I think that there, there are obvious public-private aspects to the New Deal, to be sure. But the, the, the private, the underlying private uh, sector features of Johnson's um, War on Poverty and Great Society, uh, in which there's no redistribution uh, of wealth, in which the almost the entire focus is on training and access to industry, but there's no guarantees of uh, to ward against poverty. It's mostly based on education and expanding There's a opportunity. fundamental difference. It's not just an expansion of the New Deal promise right. to those who are excluded right. from it. And there's a heavy reliance on the private sector as the the ultimate kind of uh, objective to include African Americans into. So the you know the the Housing and Urban Development uh, Act of 1968 uh, is almost entirely focused on the private sector uh, as the main conduit through which African Americans will achieve housing security or housing uh, stability and where the government is only there to inspire, coerce the participation of the private sector, but to not actually create any uh, commitment in and of itself to the housing security uh, of, of, of African Americans. And so even that, even that, I think, pretense for social welfare is too much for the right. And so they use, there, I mean, there, there are a number of things that are happening at the end of the 1960s. There's the, the racial resentment of white suburbanites. There, there is the developing narrative that white people in the suburbs are being taxed to death to pay for the dysfunction in cities. So we have the tax revolt uh, of, of white suburbanites. There, yeah, there's like all these levels of resistance to integration that's going on. Yes. Like resistance to, to school integration via busing, resistance to the the any sort of fair housing and also resistance to what we might call fiscal integration, i.e. Yes. like the desegregation of of this wealth captured in affluent right. white communities. So these people leave the cities and they want to leave the cities behind, right? And so That's the whole idea. There yes. <laughs> and so the 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 right helps to drive this narrative of the silent majority as opposed to the vocal minority who are being robbed even as they leave the city to pay for the dis- domestic dysfunction. Uh, of black people and the Democrats are allowing them um, to get away with it. So there, there's all this kind of ideological characterization of what the Johnson welfare state is, you know, that are based on uh, racist uh, distortions that people 
easily buy into because they already have them uh, in their own head about what African Americans, um, what African Americans are, and and what you know their role, the role of Black people in the deterioration of the cities that white people have fled from. Um, and so I think that politics has a lot uh, to do with it, the political characterization of what is, is, is happening and the, the way that these programs, even in newspaper stories that I'm sure would conceive of uh, themselves as being sympathetic, constantly portraying these uh, black women in particular as unsophisticated buyers um, that, again, redirects focus onto the behavior uh, of victims instead of the wider context of how these programs essentially created the conditions for the exploitation of people who were desperate for housing. And so in that, that way, this is part of how the role of the real estate industry begins to evaporate and disappear while we become overly trained, our focus becomes overly trained uh, on the, the actions and the deeds of the women um, and these families who were in any other, there's no other way to describe them as anything but victims of manipulative uh, operatives in the real estate industry. And also even, you know, focusing on what they did or didn't do, I think misses the, the larger picture of what would drive someone to buy a house that is in obvious disrepair. Is this just ignorance? Is it stupidity? Might suggest that there are not a lot of great options. Yeah, exactly. And so that that becomes that is never really a part of the the discussion. And you know, I think that that's part of the context, the changing economic fortunes in the United States, where for years there's been what had seemed like a never-ending economic expansion. Americans thought the good times were going to be here forever. And instead, they end, and they end pretty dramatically and quickly, 1973 and 1974. And it's not just that the economy, that the bottom falls out. Interest rates are higher than they have been since the Civil War by the early 1970s. And so the entire financial picture transforms. And so it's one thing to have political fights around a welfare state, when the U.S. is the affluent society, the economy seems like it will expand forever. It's another thing to have a political fight about the U.S. welfare state in a point of increasing insecurity, financial anxiety. I know it's in vogue today to treat economic anxiety as if it is just, you know, some kind of excuse to be racist. But it's actually real. It's, again... In a society where you have are guaranteed nothing by the state, the idea that you the 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 financial capacity of your job is lessened or that you don't have a job anymore, that your investment in your house is deteriorating, regardless of whether or not there are black people around, these these are are real factors that skilled politicians manipulate 
and try to tap into to deflect attention away from their own inability to actually solve the crisis. And, and Nothing that, has that's driven me more as, nuts in the last few years than than economic anxiety and racism being pit against one another right. as explanations for right. the current situation, as if economic anxiety is A, only really poor people and not also middle class or even right. affluent people, and as though there's a way to express economic anxiety that wouldn't have racial implications in a society right. where hierarchy is always explained through, through race. race. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely. And so during this period, Nixon was a master manipulator of this, surrounded by, you know, Kevin Phillips and um, his entire political apparatus that actively tried to stoke uh, white racial resentment as a way to maintain political power. And they were successful at it. To what extent is the story that you're telling about this, the collapse of this housing program and thus the collapse of civil rights liberalism, racial liberalism, also a prehistory of sorts to welfare reform and the war on drugs and the rise of mass incarceration and also of neoliberalism in the sense of this profound redefinition of problems, of the, the problem of housing and of problems more generally in society as individual rather than systematic. So I write about this in the in the book and how this rhetoric of blame, this rhetoric of racialized uh, blame, you know, not only has consequences for the African Americans who are are in the crosshairs, but it helps to further deflect uh, attention away from any notion of a uh, systemic crisis. And indeed becomes uh, tightly focused on individuals and individual behavior. And so I describe this as a a part of the kind of uh, emergence of uh, neoliberal, not just economic uh, intervention, but the political intervention that comes with neoliberalism, uh, which is the hyper-focus on individuality uh, or the individual, whether that is as a marker for your own success, uh, your own individual will and abilities, or a particular marker for failure that leaves any kind of focus on a systemic problem um, and redirects our focus to the flaws and and, uh, faults of uh, particular people uh, or families. And that is the context within which I think we understand the emergence of this discourse of uh, underclass that really comes to the fore in the nineteen, the late 1970s as an explanation for the urban crisis and what happens uh, in cities. No longer are we talking about uh, the movement of industry out of cities to the suburban periphery. No longer are we talking about the transportation policies and the policies uh, around suburbanization that then restricted African-American access to those jobs um, on the periphery. Uh, and, And the way that that creates poverty and reinforces poverty uh, in black communities and how the abandonment of white people from cities uh, destroyed the tax bases. So now that the public services uh, that a disproportionately poor population need, hospitals, uh, uh, maintenance, uh, trash pickup, public schools, all the range of, of public services that 
help cities function, that that has gone too. Um, and so no longer are we looking at any of these deeper systemic explanations uh, for what happens in cities. Instead, cities are increasingly divided between the kind of try-hard uh, black population that is there and then the the social parasites, the drug uh, uh, users, uh, the single mothers, and the, the people who, uh, in this logic, provide no social value uh, to a place, but are only socially extractive. And in that whole paradigm, we're not talking about capital. We're not talking about the misuse of power of the state. We're not talking about any of those issues. We're talking about um, individuals and the choices that they do or don't do not make as being determinative of the life chances of entire urban populations. The only thing that's left as visible are the morbid symptoms, which right. are real. Right. Much higher violent crime rates, drug abuse, yes. and then there is a self-fulfilling. They are kind real. Of- they are the consequences of economic crisis. They are the consequences of disinvestment. They are the but consequences. Seen as the cause. Right. They are they are reinterpreted um, as the cause in a very cynical political maneuver to revitalize faith in the system that this has nothing to do with capital. This is all about single family, single mother led families. Uh, this is all about the the tailspin of of culture um, and the lack of responsibility. And then by the 1990s, rap music. Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. To, to sort of bring it, it full circle, the the discrediting of any sort of systematic analysis, and there's a discrediting of it, and then just like a, it becomes almost unthinkable right. or absurd to, to venture a systematic analysis until maybe very recently. Right. Um, that was facilitated maybe by the fact that liberal anti-racism was never that systematic. You write, quote- right. Since homeownership was firmly situated as a cornerstone of the American dream, the aspiration for inclusion into its ranks went without question. If property ownership is the basis of the independence that's required of free citizenship, then lack of property ownership or the incapacity to either acquire or maintain property is evidence of a lack of fitness for free citizenship. How did the problem of of exclusion obscure and the liberals' proposal proposal for inclusion obscure this very fundamental problem, which was, as you write, quote, a social order that makes the quality of one's life and the substance of one's citizenship contingent on the possession of private property? We've talked a little bit about public housing, which is not, you know, it's not full socialism, but it's a decommodification of a significant chunk of life that other countries like you know, Austria have successfully employed. Part of the problem here, it seems to me, is that is that the private property system is fundamentally about exclusion. That's what private property rights are are about. The inside, for the inside to be meaningful, it requires an outside. Right. And so the idea of including everyone into the inside of the system, which was racial liberalism's idea, was inherently impossible. And this this is the problem when even the best of the liberals continue to uh, promote home ownership as the solution to 
the wealth gap, as the solution to marginalization, really as the the solution to the ongoing oppression of African Americans, right? Like there are many, I think, you know, among many of the the presidential campaigns uh, candidates, this promotion of home ownership is seen as uh, a way to uh, include African Americans into again this notion of American largesse. It's missing a fundamental understanding of the way that this emphasis uh, on private property and ownership perpetuates the problem in a different way, meaning that we still have to grapple with this question of why our quality of life is so contingent on ownership of an accruing asset that even in the hands of Black people doesn't accrue in the same way. And so by accepting the paradigm of home ownership, home ownership will free you, that in some ways we are accepting the inequality that is embedded in that. Because until there is some way to disrupt this idea that Black people have a deleterious impact on property values, thus Black neighborhoods are valued differently, Black people are valued differently, then we see the perpetuation of the same problem over and over again. And so, you know, I think that there are things that can be done to combat um, racial discrimination in the housing market. There are things that can be done to combat racial discrimination uh, among lenders. But the market is us, right? The market is a reflection of the values, desires of the the public. And power relations with yeah. the public. No, exactly. Among whom goods are bought and sold. And so as long as Black life is devalued in American society in general, then that devaluation will continue to reflect itself, not just in the housing market, but in property values. And that means that African Americans are, are at a permanent disadvantage within this framework. And so if you want to keep your private property thing intact, then you have to build a social welfare state where one's life does not hinge upon ownership of the asset. And so if, if we have universal health care, if we have a cancellation of college debt in combination with free college, if we have guaranteed resources for a comfortable retirement, if we have access to... Uh, decommodified housing, housing outside of the market, okay, then keep your home ownership, private property system intact. Because the urgency with which to buy into that because of the absence of any kind of social welfare would be gone if we had access uh, to those things. If those, if those needs were satisfied elsewhere, if they were satisfied through the state, they were satisfied through public programs, then the reliance on owning something 
as a way to buy into that uh, would lessen dramatically. And so that would be one way to allow African-Americans to actually be able to overcome what is now a permanent disadvantage. Do you see the explosion of, of subprime loans ahead of the 2008 financial crisis and the mass foreclosures that followed as sort of a repetition of, of sorts of the predatory inclusion you write about in your book? It's not a repetition. It's an acceleration of deregulation and any checks, the financial institutions and, and real estate. Um, there is a connection between the two. I think that the historic processes that led to the uneven development between Black communities and white majority communities created the conditions, as, as I've described earlier, by which Black communities could be described as, as subprime. And so, you know, as a result of these homeownership programs, hundreds of thousands of it was the homeownership programs, but also multifamily dwellings, which were categorized under Section 236 of the Housing and Urban Development Act. So it was all part of the same legislation, but both single family homes and multifamily dwellings, hundreds of thousands of them went into foreclosure over the course of the, the 70s and the early 1980s because of the impropriety in these programs. And all of that, of course, contributed to the degradation of property values in Black communities um, and the overall degradation of those areas, which allowed the banks to say, we should proceed with caution in these communities, For which for me is the essence of what predatory inclusion is. It's saying, we will include you, but we have to do so on different terms because of the greater levels of poverty and inequality in these areas marks these places as risky. And so that is the the relationship between the two. But what we saw in the late 1990s and the, uh, the 2000s was really an, a, a massive acceleration and exaggeration of what happens when there's almost no pretense of government regulation. But Another connection between the two is the way that the way that the private sector disappears from the interrogation of what happens with these programs. Right. Look at Bloomberg's recent statements oh, that it was yeah, that it was no, the I inclusion I know. of that it was the inclusion of people who weren't financially worthy to buy homes that caused this, which obscures both obviously the lead role well, played by the banks, but also the question of like, maybe there are other ways to provide people with homes than but subprime He also loans. said that Congress forced banks to <laughs> make, I mean, this is, this, the Congress doesn't force anyone to do anything, let alone provide loans or housing yeah. uh, to people. And, and so there's a reliance on uh, our ignorance yeah. about this period, you know, about, uh, the a history uh, of of U.S. housing policies, but I was going to say that the the way that the the private sector disappears means that as early as um, 1982, Reagan's um, uh, HUD convenes a conference on the issue of, of of housing in the United States. 
Um, and it uses uh, the, the HUD Act as a touch point, as evidence of what happens when government gets involved in trying to house people, that it's essentially a disaster. And it uses that to make an argument that the private sector needs to be unleashed uh, and that the quote-unquote red tape um, needs to be uh, gotten rid of so that the market can work its magic in creating housing for people. So there are consequences to the lack of interrogation of uh, the role of the the private sector. I mean, in the case of of Reagan, um, it, it, this is a very deliberate attempt to uh, to disappear the role of business. Um, but I think that the, its impact within the wider um, public, you know, has left intact this idea that it's business that. Uh, is the most innovative, that is the most efficient. Opportunity uh, zones. We yes, see no, absolutely. Bush's ownership society. Yeah. And that it's government that is bumbling and ineffective and is ultimately the problem. And this is, people believe this, you know. Um, and How can we trust government with Medicare for all? Right. But there's a legitimacy to the belief because the influence of capital and private sector forces in the state help to undermine its effectiveness so that you have this housing program that has no regulations, that has no uh, uh, federal oversight, and that destroys black neighborhoods. It does raise a question about, well, where the hell was the government? You know? But it's distorted into a libertarian critique right. rather than one of like state capture by, right. by capitalism. And the answer is, thus, we need greater oversight. Not less. We need to improve the mechanisms um, by which we enforce civil rights rules and regulations and by which we uh, conduct regulation and oversight. Not we need a full uh, extraction. And increase popular power over the government. Yes, absolutely. And for black people, in some ways, that there's always been clarity around this. African-Americans have always called for greater state oversight because of the way that racism has run rampant throughout the private sector. And it is only through the intervention of the state that there has been any semblance of a check on that. Um, But that, you know, the legacy of government malfeasance, you know, has been allowed to to be used in the, the way that Bloomberg is talking about, which is government is is the problem, not part of the, the solution. And so that's part of the calculus that we have to change. Well, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is the author of Race for Profit, how banks and the real estate industry undermined Black homeownership. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that only under certain conditions does a Black person become a slave, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. 
Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, ostensibly. But what actually truly does that is you just telling other people that you like the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help.